welcome to the first ever episode of The Whole Teeth, the podcast that pitches your questions about sharks and their underwater world to leading experts in marine science and conservation. I'm your host, Isla. I'm a scientist, a scuba diver, and just an all-round shark enthusiast. I work with sharks and I will talk about them to just about anybody who will listen. So this podcast is like a dream come true. I just basically get to nerd out about sharks with the people who know them best. And we have some really special guests on this season on to talk about topics ranging from shark physiology to shark conservation to threats to sharks to shark movements and behaviour and even careers in marine science. So I am so excited to finally share it with you. I'm also an education ambassador for the Save Our Seas Foundation who bring you this podcast. And as it's our first episode, I thought I'd talk a little bit about who we are and what we do. So the Save Our Seas Foundation is an organisation dedicated to promoting the research and conservation of sharks and the oceans. And since their inception in 2003, they have funded an incredible 400 projects in almost 80 countries. Now, these are projects which strive for a deeper understanding and more innovative solutions in marine science, conservation and education. And one of them you are listening to right this very second. So if you'd like to find out more about the organisation, you can head to saveourseas.com or find us on Instagram on at Foundation or one word, and Twitter on at saveourseas. Okay, so without further ado, let's get on to our episode. So today's episode is a really fun one. We had a question sent in by Yuri, who is 10, asking, how do sharks do babies? So this episode will be all about the sharky birds and the bees, mating and reproduction. And I have two amazing guests joining me today to help me answer this question. The first is Gillian Morris-Brake, aka Bimini Shark Girl on social media. Now, Gillian is not only one of the nicest people you'll meet, but she is also a huge shark advocate with a really extensive and varied career in shark research, conservation, filmmaking and education. Gillian is a scuba diver and award-winning photographer and has filmed for the likes of the BBC and National Geographic, just to name a few. She is also the author of Norman the Near Shark and Shark Superpowers. And in 2012, Gillian founded Sharks for Kids, a nonprofit focused on creating the next generation of shark advocates through education, outreach, and adventure. Now, Sharks for Kids is a really awesome organization, and I would highly recommend checking them out. So I'll link to everything in the show notes. Our second guest is the equally wonderful and accomplished Jenny Bortolusi. So like Gillian, Jenny is a woman of many, many talents with a serious passion for sharks. She is an ambassador and virtual lessons coordinator for Sharks for Kids. And she is also currently studying for her PhD in the ecology of blue sharks at Trinity College Dublin. And not only that, but she is also an underwater photographer, freediver and scuba diver. Now... These ladies really know their stuff when it comes to sharks and I had so much fun chatting with them. So without further ado, let's dive in. Just to kick us off, where in the world are you right now? So Gillian, we'll start with you. 
So normally I'm in Bimini in the Bahamas, um, but I happen to be visiting Florida for a little bit. So um, yeah, pretty close, but um, Bimini is home and uh, it's a very sharky place, which is why I'm actually based there. Yeah, so t- tell us a little bit about Bimini. Yeah, so Bimini is uh, the closest uh, Bahamian island to the US. It's about 50 miles and it's very, very tiny. Uh, The top side doesn't have a lot, but underwater, uh, it's one of the sharkiest places in the world. It's made famous, uh, the Bimini Biological Field Station. It's a lot of shark research. A lot of the things that we actually know about these animals has kind of come out of the Bahamas. Um, If you're a shark person, you've probably heard of Bimini. Maybe you've been there uh, or you've seen it on television shows, the BBC, Um, Animal Planet, Discovery Channel, every year, lots of um, TV shows are filmed there, crystal clear water, lots of diversity and and healthy shark populations. So it's really, really special. And if you want to see sharks or work with them, uh, it's it's an ideal place to do that. Yeah, it sounds like heaven in my opinion. And Jenny, whereabouts in the world are you? Uh, I am currently in Ireland, in Dublin, Ireland, uh, where I do my PhD at Trinity College, Dublin. Um, it might not be as warm or as crystal clear waters, but they are pretty sharky waters here. Um, we get over 70 species of sharks and rays in our waters, just like in the UK. Um, so there's plenty for us to see and study. It's really fantastic world underwater in Ireland, just like it is over uh, above water. Yeah, yeah, absolutely stunning. And it's so nice to, to also rep cold water as well. 100%, yeah, there are sharks in cold water. <laughs> there definitely are. One thing I like to ask my guests to kick us off is what is your most memorable experience in the ocean? It's probably, it's a very hard question. <laughs> I have to say mine is actually pretty easy because it was really significant. Um, I was able to see a lemon shark give birth to 10 pups in the wild, uh, seeing her come into shallow waters next to the mangroves in Bimini and pretty much beach herself, uh, get as close as she could. And then to watch the life of each of these little sharks, um, you know, come out, attach the umbilical cord, they fight off and then kind of a little sleepy almost. And then it's like someone flipped a switch and they're immediately a shark and they swim into the mangroves and life starts. And just seeing that and seeing um, this animal that I think people think of as big and strong and powerful, so vulnerable and so little, uh, really, really special and such a rare thing to actually see. So that remains probably the coolest thing I've ever seen, definitely in the ocean. Oh my God, that's absolutely incredible I mean and it it, it's definitely in touch with this episode too um in terms of what we're about to talk about uh Jenny how about you what was your most memorable experience um well that's a really hard one to beat um and my most memorable experience is probably Jillian's everyday like experience in the ocean um but I was in Bimini a few years back and I was I was out with the team um, at the Hammerhead location. Um, It was early in the season, so we didn't know if Hammerhead uh, Hammerhead would actually turn up. And I think for about two hours, we were in the water chumming, like, you know, having a go at the fish to try and attract a Hammerhead into the area. And I was just about to give up and get out of the water and have a break. And I turned round to get onto the boat as one of the staff members suddenly shouted hammerhead and I think 
for a moment I thought he was joking and 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 making fun of me um but when I turned around this big beautiful great hammerhead was coming down right below us um it was Medusa her name was Medusa and she uh she stayed with us for I don't know it must have been half an hour an hour and I went down free dive down to see like to get closer at one point and as I swam back up and pop up to the surface I heard everyone shouting behind you behind you and she'd followed me right up to the surface and she was right on my fins and it was amazing to have this huge animal come up and inspect me and say what are you and why are you in my habitat wow yeah I mean not everyone can say they've had a a great hammerhead on their fins yeah sure (laughs) oh they're both incredible experiences and I mean both of you have had you know so many more experiences than that but there are definitely ones that stand out in our mind as is particularly memorable for, for very different reasons. Um, so you're obviously both incredibly passionate about sharks um, and the underwater world. And I just wondered sort of, you know, where, where did that passion actually begin for you guys? Yeah, so I grew up in Maine in the US and luckily had parents that loved the ocean and would take me to the beach and spend a lot of time crawling through tide pools and snails and crabs and anything. Um, was just exciting um, and just loved that. And then my dad went to Florida every year for work. So I got to go with him and I was eight and we went snorkeling and I got to see a nurse shark, saw manatees, but it was really, I mean, the manatees were amazing, but I remember the little shark. It was a small nurse shark and just, yeah, immediately became obsessed. And I went home, got books and started learning and just, yeah, that moment at such a young age and getting to see that and just see the ocean in general lucky enough to to spend time there I think that just really set off a lifelong journey of wanting to know more and then the more you find out about sharks and then deciding that I wanted to focus a career on that and study them and um, which kind of evolved into then different aspects of working with sharks Uh, but yeah it really it started at a young age just absolute fascination that never faded Mine's mine's very similar. I um at the other end of the ocean though. I uh, I grew up on the shores of Brittany in France, and every summer my parents would take us to the beach. And while my brothers were like playing in the sand or whatever, I was always bent over the rock pools with my net, trying to find every little creature that lived in there. And I yeah, I've always been very passionate about nature and animals. I think my parents really instilled that love for nature in me. And so once I got old enough, I gave scuba diving a try and and it just kind of like went from there. My love for sharks actually comes from uh, the film Sharkwater by Rob Stewart. I watched it at about the age of 13 and it just stayed with me. And I went off after seeing it, I went off and did the same. I read books and watched more documentaries and found out more about them. And I think the first wild shark I ever saw was actually a, a cat shark. Um, so these little little sharks um, that most people don't realize are actually sharks. Um, but when I saw them, saw it, I like was so excited to see my first shark in the wild. So yeah just something about sharks isn't there that just sort of lodges in your mind when you once you've seen one you can't sort of let them go like you have to go and find out as much as you can about them and they just sort of really get under your skin and become part of your life so talking about those experiences kind of in 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 early childhood how did you then you know how did that transfer into a career so let's kind of talk about your individual career journeys and you know you're women of 
many, many, many talents. Uh, so I'm just going to read some of these off. So Gillian, you started off with a degree in marine biology. You then became a research assistant, then went into, you know, uh, as a dive guide, you worked as a scuba dive guide and then transitioned sort of into underwater photography and, and filmmaking. So I kind of just want to talk a little bit about that career progression. Um, so, you know, you went from you know, the research side into the filmmaking side and, and how how did you make that transition? Was photography always something that you did kind of alongside the research or was it something that sort of came afterwards? Yeah, so I grew up with a mother that was always taking photos and always had a really nice camera. And so um, I remember in high school doing some black and white, you know, experimenting and loving the camera. And so when I started doing internships and field work, I had a camera with me and um, like everyone has their phone now, but I actually had, you know, an, a real camera and was documenting what I thought was just interesting and cool um, and was, you know, graduated and was so excited and then realized that um, marine ballet jobs are hard to come by, specifically if you're trying to work with sharks, super <laughs> competitive. Um, and I wanted to be in the field, but, you know, navigating that journey that we've all been through and every marine biologist goes through uh, is, okay, great, now what? How do I make a living? How do I support myself? And so, um, you know, as I was traveling in the camera and I, I started showing people photos and videos and seeing the reactions, like, oh my gosh, I didn't know you could do that, or how beautiful is that, or how cool is this shark? And and was getting to go in, and work in some remote places. I worked in a part of Western Australia that's pretty remote with some very large tiger sharks. And I had looked at doing a PhD there and I just kind of explored my options and then just kind of really felt connected to showing people this world and really felt something. And you guys can probably relate to this if you've shown someone a, a photo of a, a basking shark or any shark that you've been in the water with or you've seen or, or, or taken. And it starts a conversation. Um, and it's mm -hmm. usually one, unless you're talking to other shark people that already kind of get it. But if you're talking to your family, your friends that don't do this kind of work or haven't experienced it, um, it's really incredible the conversation it starts. And I, I just found that fascinating. And so that kind of led me into, okay, well, if um, I can use these photos and videos and show people and then, okay, there's an opportunity for work with this as well, um, because I'm comfortable mm -hmm. in the water. I'm a diver. I'm comfortable around big animals. You know, I've spent a lot of time with big sharks and now I, I know how to use a camera. I had to learn the underwater part. It's very, very different than using a camera topside. And I didn't take any classes that was learning, you know, on the fly in the field, just simply by shooting. Um, and, and so, yeah, it was kind of just a natural transition and that I really fell in love with the idea and the experience of sharing those images and, and video and seeing the power. I know it's cliche that, you know, an image says, you know, speaks volumes, speaks a thousand mm -hmm. words, but it is, it's very, very true. And when you can show that to someone and see their reaction and see how powerful it is, that just to me at the time felt, you know, I really felt connected to that and loved mm -hmm. being able to, to do that. So that was, it was a very natural transition. And then kind of then going back and filming and photographing the research or, you know, that I was doing and, and explaining that story as well. What is, what is, why are we doing this? Why are we working with this animal? Why are we tagging it and, and kind of explaining so was able to bring in the science back into it um, mm -hmm. and use it as a tool to explain to people why the work is being done. Why are we tagging this animal? Why are we have it next to a boat like this? Or why mm -hmm. is it? Um, and so, yeah, so it was just a really, really um, natural transition. And 
um, just, yeah, felt really connected to the power of it. Yeah, so it almost kind of went full circle in a way. So you're able to bring the research back into it. That's so cool. And I think that's such an important message as well, because, you know, for for the majority of the population, their connection to sharks and how they find out about sharks is through film and is through photography. So it's super, super important. And then I guess another element of that is education, which brings us on, you know, really nicely to Sharks for Kids. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about, you know, what Sharks for Kids is and how how it came about? Yeah, so the next step was so I had the science experience, the science background. Now I had this media and I had met my husband shark diving and he was filming for all these TV shows and we were filming together. And when you work with sharks, um, I had a lot of friends. My mom's a teacher. Hey, can you come into the classroom and talk? Can you give a talk about sharks or your experience, which is amazing. And then a lot of people were asking, do you have an activity sheet? Do you have something to go with this? And at the time I didn't, I wasn't, this was you know, 15 years ago or something, um, maybe more than that. Um, and uh, so I didn't really find a lot that like I there wasn't an easy way to find Oh, here, great. Here's this activity sheet to do after the talk. So I thought, hmm, that might be kind of cool. And so I sat on that idea. And then I actually when I turned 30, I had been talking about it so much that finally, my husband was like, why don't you just do something <laughs> like you're talking about it. clearly this is important and clearly we have the, the science background we have loads of media content and my best friend had just finished his phd um on tiger sharks and had done a lot of classroom visits as well and so we'd all kind of believe that kids have this voice and they're excited and you can um, get them interested and we can get them facts instead of uh the misinformation that they're destined to hear about sharks. Um, but if we can kind of give them the tools to navigate that, all right, then let's do this. And so um, it really came out of a belief that kids, if we give them the facts, we can empower and inspire them and that they have a voice that's much more powerful than they mm -hmm. realize. Uh, and that's the goal. The goal of Sharks for Kids is to create the next generation of shark advocates through education, outreach, and adventure. And we do that with free resources for teachers, students, and parents. Uh, lots of interactive opportunities, classroom visits, a lot of virtual lessons. Um, yes. And when we can, we we take students out to actually see sharks and participate in shark tagging. That's incredible. And it's much needed because, you know, we've we've talked for ages in conservation about having this kind of growing disconnect between, you know, the younger generation and nature. So any initiative that sort of helps to to bring uh, young people together with conservation and, you know, exploring their environment is 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 so, so valuable. Um, and so, so you mentioned, Gillian, that Jenny, you are an ambassador for Sharks for Kids. So we'll also talk about your research. Um, but first, I just wanted to ask you while we're on the subject, what does being an ambassador for Sharks for Kids entail? Oh, um, it, it takes on many forms for different ambassadors. For me personally, uh, it's uh, doing exactly that, connecting with students all over the world and giving lessons and, and talking to, to them about sharks and sharing my love for sharks and uh, it's one of the best things I've been doing for the last few years. I absolutely love it. And I'm not just saying that because Jillian's here. <laughs> I appreciate that. But you are one of our, I mean, I have to say, I, I'm going to interrupt Jenny, you like the work that Jenny's done and you can tell it's, it's contagious and um, yeah, it's really special to me to have ambassadors that just, you can tell are so genuine and mm -hmm. enthusiastic and, and the feedback from teachers and students from that um, it's really, really powerful. And Jenny is definitely, um, you know, you, the work you're doing is incredible and we love, love having you on the team. And I'm not just saying that because you're on the call. <laughs> <laughs> 
yeah no one's obligated it's just we're just appreciating each other I love doing it because alongside my research it helps me put it back into context and remind me of why I'm doing the things that I'm doing in my science Mm -hmm. um, and vice versa yeah and that brings us on very very nicely to your PhD you actually did the segue for me so so thank you for that um but yes you you have so many roles as well I felt absolutely exhausted sort of researching you both just how much stuff that you actually do and so Jenny you have you know two degrees in marine biology you're about to finish your third uh, so your PhD in elasma bank ecology Um, but you're also on the comms team for the Irish Baskin Shark project you're also you know the postgraduate rep for the um, Irish uh, Ecological Association ambassador for sharks for kids you're a blogger and so I have many questions but the first one is you know your all about your PhD so you know what is your specific PhD question and you know how are you addressing that question? The work that I'm working on right now is looking at the diet of blue sharks when they are in Ireland so blue sharks are seasonal visitors to Irish waters they arrive around the end of May early June and they stay here until October and the work I'm doing is investigating what they eat while they're here uh, and also um, what that means in terms of like their requirements uh, mm-hmm. in energy requirements according to their uh, what point in their reproductive status they are so um, the sharks we get here are almost all female sharks um, which is really interesting in and of itself um, but depending on where in their reproductive cycle they are they're going to have different needs for Um, nutrients and for for energy um, that they get through their food so we're looking at the links between their diet and their their reproductive biology and also their physiology so how fast they swim is it optimal for the food that they're eating so these are all questions that I'm looking into and I'm using a variety of different um, methods including like putting cameras on them putting speed sensors on them um, taking samples and looking at their blood and what's inside their blood um, it's really cool uh, and it's been really amazing to be involved with because uh, it's not been done much in Ireland blue sharks are often, often thought as one of the the best known sharks because they're really they're the most widely distributed species of, of pelagic shark uh, and um, the most abundant but in Ireland we don't know much about their behavior here it hasn't been studied much so mm. it's been really amazing to be part mm-hmm. of yeah that's such a that's such an awesome PhD um, every time I hear someone describe their their PhD topic I want to be like I want to be doing that <laughs> I wish I'd done that um, but I think that's also that's also going to be a theme throughout this whole episode is that you know we think we know a fair bit about sharks but we actually don't know much at all so with without further ado shall we get on to our question yeah the question that we have to answer today is was actually sent into us from uh, yuri who is 10 years old uh, and she was asking how do sharks do babies which i just absolutely loved as a question and how it's phrased um <laughs> but i think this is a question that you know we could you know, even if we know sharks, we could all do with a refresher in, or if you don't know anything about sharks at all, it's such a massive and complex world um, is shark reproduction. And there is so much still to learn about it. So I thought what we could do, first of all, is actually talk about, you know, how much we actually do know. And um, so this is potentially 
a more difficult question than it first appears to answer because we don't know actually that much about shark you know reproductive habits or mating behavior and i just wanted to ask you guys you know why is it that we that we know so little yeah so i think um one of the challenges is when you look at studying anything in the ocean it's vast um and access to it means boats equipment um you know yes you can learn a lot um in aquariums and i think some of the reproductive studies definitely have utilized aquarium species um but it's the challenge that we see studying any sort of marine life um is that just the depth of the ocean the vastness access to it reliably consistently um you know prepping for field work and funding to do that um maybe you need to be on the water every single day to, to hope you see something and we oftentimes can't can't do that and so i think mm -hmm. that's the challenge that not just for shark reproduction but in general and then if you look at migratory species we you know where are they going where are they spending their time and mm -hmm. so that's a, a study in itself to then better understand where is this reproduction happening we know it happens we see signs of it um it's obvious these species are surviving so we know it's happening but where when um, because we just, we're not able to see it unless it's, um, you know, certain species, nurse sharks, for example, there are places that we know this is June is actually happy nurse shark dating month. Um, at least, <laughs> at, least, at least in Florida and the Bahamas, this is when they mate. And so they come in shallow water. So you're able to see it. It's been documented. Dr. Jeff Carrier and Wes Pratt, like, um, actually, you know, studied this for decades. Um, and it's probably one of the species we know most about as far as reproductive mating strategies um and it's simply because it's shallow water and we have access to it but for the most part you know deep sea species species that migrate go offshore we just don't have access to it and the the time and the the tools to be out there and to to monitor it enough to probably see it yeah absolutely i mean some of these species you know you're talking they travel thousands of kilometers or they can be thousands of kilometers deep and so it's it's really hard to keep track of them and, and at the same time you know there's over 500 species of shark so there are so many different answers to this question that we can go down um but of the shark species that we do know about you know what does what does mating actually look like yeah so i actually was lucky enough to work my first one of my first shark projects was nurse shark mating behavior so we were watching mm -hmm. observing uh spent countless hours on a tower uh, in the dry tortugas off Florida, watching them come in. We had them color coded. So we had them identified males, females. We knew individuals with color coded tags and watching and, and seeing the mating behavior. And so I think you nurse know, sharks, because the study has been gone on, you know, so long and we know that, uh, you know, males do grab onto the females there's not a lot of romance um there's definitely not you know dinner in a movie uh, <laughs> it, there's yeah there's no romance so they use their mouths i mean they can't really they're um nurse sharks do have more flexible pec fins but not really flexible uh as as they would need so um they'll actually bite on flip the female and then it is internal fertilization so males use their clasper um to insert into the cloaca of the female for internal fertilization but it's um with nurse sharks you actually see avoidance behavior so females will actually avoid specific males they'll use rolling they'll go into shallower areas um and then you'll see males working together actually to kind of corral and and trap females as well so i think a lot of um images we've seen or videos of mating behavior 
we know and can kind of infer from what happens with nurse sharks because we see the bite marks from around the pectoral fins where they're grabbing and flipping the female and it's pretty brutal like you're gonna you see sharks show up and uh, I mean, they're cut up they're pretty it, it's pretty um it's pretty intense and uh to see all the the marks and the cuts and the scarring that happens it's a tough world for a female <laughs> shark out there not sure i would like to be one um and and that's not even the least of it um i claspers when they they when they uh, insert their claspers into females they'll turn their claspers inside out and those claspers have spines along them mm. which stop them from slipping out so yeah it's not it's not i wouldn't like to be a female shark yes definitely there's there's definitely not much romance going on in the shark world um but you you mentioned claspers there and i wondered if we could just explain to people that don't know what claspers are what they are they're the shark's version of penises um they have two their extensions of the the their um fins and um yeah 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 thank you um we actually have a baskin shark uh, up here in scotland called dangerous dave and he is named dangerous dave for his enormous claspers so there you go that's how you can id <laughs> sometimes how you can id sharks is, is by the size of the claspers um but we we do hear about animals kind of on land that sometimes have you know things like courtship rituals so you know you, you might see uh, you might see a couple of birds doing some dances together or, you know, is there anything that like that that exists in the shark world? I know we've kind of mentioned that they're maybe not the most romantic and might not kind of exhibit that sort of behavior. I mean, one of the things for sure is you do see aggregations. Um, they, mm -hmm. they come together and it's it may be just for mating. I mean, you think of scalloped hammerheads, people, you've probably seen the schooling scalloped hammerheads. Um, lemon sharks also aggregate and yeah, to because if everyone's in the same place, think of like the date increases your options for the date finding a date right it's the dating pool or, or their version of online dating or going to the bar. Um, it's it's much easier if everybody's sort of um, so that you know in the same area so that's definitely a behavior. Um, you know, and you'll usually see it seasonally um, mm -hmm. and uh, that's uh, that you'll have you know hundreds if not thousands of the same species in an area yeah to to make it easier to find a mate and and some females to increase their chances of having litters and genetically diverse litters will mate with multiple males uh, uh, and their their babies can actually be from different fathers um which mm -hmm. is really cool um, but I do think, I think in some species, it, it, it's like everything with sharks, it varies. Some species do display some courtship behavior. Others travel thousands of miles to, to find a mate. And in some species, we just don't know how they find mates. I mean, um, how do sharks in the deep sea find, find <laughs> males and females of the same species? It's a mystery. Um, you mentioned there that some females you know have you know mate with multiple males but there there are cases where females actually don't mate with males at all so i wondered if we could talk about the phenomenon that is uh, parthenogenesis yeah parthenogenesis is a really cool process um it exists in reptiles and in plants um and a few years ago i think it was in 2007 um it was observed and proven in a captive shark. So um, that one was a bonnet head um, shark. Um, and um, the aquarium staff essentially came in one morning and um, there were three female bonnet head sharks in the 
in the aquarium and they hadn't never seen you know had never been in the in the tank with a male and they were caught wild when they were only like small babies um mm-hmm. so there'd be no chance because um some sharks well sharks are also capable of storing sperm for a really long time um so it's been observed in aquariums before where for a really long time sharks don't have any males in there and then give birth but it turns out it's actually because they've stored the sperm for so long which is also weird um and and wonderful (laughs) thing about sharks um but in this case there was no way the females could have mated um with another with a male so um, some scientists, I think uh, Damien Ch- Chapman ha- at the time did some genetic analyses on them and found out that they were um, they were a copy of the, the mother. So not a complete copy. In parthenogenesis, there are two ways of doing it. It's either a complete clone of the mum or mm-hmm. it's a half clone where the cell has split in half and only half the chromosomes pass on to to the the offspring and in that case it's always it always ends up being daughters um, because in the case of sharks they have an x and a y chromosome and so when the cell splits then only the x um, the x um, chromosome uh, multiplies and becomes an offspring so whenever you have parthenogenesis in sharks uh, it's pretty much always daughters uh, that end up Mm -hmm. being born um, and yeah, they're a half clone of the mother, and it's a really cool phenomenon that happens. We've observed it in zebra sharks since then. We've mm-hmm. observed it in uh, white-spotted bamboo sharks, in black tip sharks, um, but most of our observations have been in aquariums when there haven't been where females have been isolated from males. So we don't know um, if or how often this happens in the wild. Oh, fascinating. See, this is why I love sharks. There's just all these kinds of weird and wonderful things happen. You know, there's lots and lots of species of shark. There's too many to actually go into the details of each one. Uh, But there are a couple of main strategies that sharks take when it comes to actually giving birth to their young. So can we can we talk a little bit about those those strategies? Yeah, um, there are three on top of the parthenogenesis that I was talking about earlier um there are three main uh strategies for um giving birth or reproducing in sharks uh the first is just like us giving birth to live babies that they will carry in their bellies for in a placenta for over nine months 12 months sometimes more Um, And once the baby is ready to get out, the pup is ready to get out, um, they uh, give birth and that is it. Now, there's no maternal care. Once they're out of mum, they swim away as fast as they can and they go and hide somewhere. Um, (laughs) So animals like... Go straight to teenage phase. (laughs) Yeah, pretty much. Uh, So species like lemon sharks, bull sharks, they are all uh, live-bearing. We say uh, viviparous. And it's really cool, actually, because you can tell that a a pup has just been born because they actually have an umbilical scar on their belly. Um, So they heal really quickly. They don't keep them uh, for their whole life like we do. We have our belly button. But um, they do, I think, within a week they'll heal. But if they're under a week old, you can uh, can tell because they'll have this like little belly button on their belly oh. it's super cool 
that's super cute yeah um and in some species because um they grow in utero you actually see competition between pups in the belly so one of the most famous ones is the sand tiger shark um where they will actually eat each other in the belly of the mum um so the the strongest essentially it means the strongest and and fiercest pup uh makes it out alive and the other ones get eaten up by it it's a tough world for a shark from even before you're born yeah absolutely from the get-go because I mean we talked about you know mating actually being not the easiest way of doing things um so when it comes to but actually even then how to do that in the room (laughs) um the second strategy is the opposite is uh, laying eggs so over uh, over Paris um, and it's really cool a species like cat sharks for example um, uh, lay eggs or the Port Jackson um, they all lay eggs and these eggs are um, unique to each species and they will tie them up in the seaweed usually um, in the kelp uh, and they're really camouflaged so um, to protect them from predators and um, they'll grow in this egg and when they're ha- ready to hatch um, they'll hatch uh, and swim away now it's really cool because these eggs actually then wash up on the beaches and as you walk along the strand line uh, and you look through the seaweed you'll very often find them so yeah it's so cool and they're they're, they're really distinctive as well so they're, they're quite often they feel quite tough and leathery don't they and yeah each different species has a different shape of egg and sometimes they can have these really curly little they look like little pigtails that come off them and that's how they yeah. attach them onto the seaweed yeah. or I think is it the Port Jackson shark that has the it looks almost like a spiral yeah, yeah. and they sort of screw it into into spaces in the rock which is just so cool and then the last strategy is kind of a mix between the two uh, it used to be called ovoviviparity. Now I think we refer to it more as um, viviparity via egg, via yolk sac, um, placental viviparity, um, a placental viviparity as well. Um, and that's kind of so the 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 mother will keep the eggs in her belly, so the eggs aren't as tough as they would be if she was laying them. So it's a bit more of a flimsy case because she's keeping them inside her belly. Um, but they're not attached to the mother through an umbilical cord or through blood vessels. They are purely uh, attached to their yolk sac. And once they are ready to hatch, they'll hatch inside the belly. And they'll still stay in the belly for for some time after that sometimes. And they'll feed on um, unfertilized eggs, for example. So we've talked about the main strategies to do babies, if you like. Um, But how long does it take for a baby shark to develop? We've said before, it it really varies among sharks. And for some species, we have no idea. We we don't know. But the species that have been studied, uh, the average is usually nine to 12 months. Um, Going back to the nurse shark, that's one of my favorites. And I feel like deserve more attention than they get. Uh, (laughs) Theirs is about five or six months. Then a lot of reports say that the frilled shark, which is a deep sea species, can have a gestation period up to three and a half years. Wow. Which, um, I can't even, I just, I have an 11 month old daughter and nine months <laughs> is, is a long time. Uh, if that, and if there's some species of dogfish as well that have quite a lengthy, you know, longer than the 12 months as well. So it varies. And again, it's 
with over 500 different species, there's still um, so many of those species that we don't actually know. How frequent actually is mating? So how often do sharks reproduce? Yeah, consequently, they can't have babies that often. So I think some species do have babies like maybe twice a year or lay eggs twice a year. But most of the time, it's at least once a year, if not more. So it's it's really varies from species to species like everything um but but they are really they have long reproductive cycles and low numbers of babies usually per reproductive cycle so yeah which to to give it its fancy scientific term is k-selected if i remember correctly (laughs) yeah exactly Yeah. yeah yeah and so other you know sharks we haven't actually mentioned this but you know sharks are types of fish and other types of fish uh, breed very differently. Yeah, and, and that, yeah, exactly. It's pretty much the opposite of other types of fish where they try and invest as much as possible into a, a low number of um, offspring. In fact, even blue sharks, which are ones of the, one of the ones that lay the mo- that give birth to the most babies, only give birth up to, uh, I think it's a maximum of 130 or 140, something like that. But most of the time, it's less than 100. And that seems like a really big number. But when you compare it to salmon or cod that lay thousands uh, of eggs, and the sunfish, I think, is in the millions even. So, <laughs> um, so it's really a completely different ballpark. Yeah, and you mentioned the sunfish there, just as a very quick note, if no, if anybody listening hasn't already seen a picture of a baby sunfish, they are the most adorable things I've ever seen. So give it, give it a good Google. So, you know, sharks tend to invest quite a lot of effort in their young um, and, and they quite typically don't have lots of young. So one of my questions was, you know, do, do sharks then look after their young after they've, after they've left the womb? So they do not. Um, and this is, you know, always sounds terrible. And I, I, people's reaction are like, oh my gosh, how can they do that? But <laughs> baby, you know, whether if a shark lays an egg case and she deposits it, you know, she's not sitting on a, a nest like a, a bird would and taking care of it. Mm-hmm. Um, so when that little baby hatches out, it's on its own. And then in the case of live birth, um, with the, the lemon shark I mentioned, they'll actually have a hormone in their body that's secreted to suppress their appetite so that they don't turn around and eat their own young and they'll swim off and, and start eating again, you know, looking for food after um, they've dropped the pups. But these little sharks are immediately, they're, they're on their own. Um, and we inserted a tag in, in the pups and one of them within an hour got eaten by a barracuda. Um, <gasps> so yeah, and she'll, you know, she gets as close as she can to that protective mangrove area to try and allow them to get to, to shelter, but she's not corralling them or, or staying around and guarding them. And they're not hanging out. They're not nursing. They're not mm-hmm. uh, learning from, um, from mom. Uh, yeah, they're, they're fully on their own, but because they're so fully developed, sensory yeah. systems, the ability to eat, to hunt, all of that, they're really just a perfect mini version of mom and dad. So they're capable of taking care of themselves, but there are absolutely a lot of predators out there that will, you know, be looking for these little animals. It's absolutely phenomenal. Like, I mean, because obviously a lot of what we learn as humans is, is so much from our parents. Our parents teach us so much or the people around us, whereas sharks are truly just, you know, hitting the ground running or hitting the ground swimming, should I, should I say. <laughs> yeah. 
I have heard about shark nurseries and I'm sure some people listening have as well. And um, so I, I kind of wondered, you know, what they are, because in my head, I just picture like a little kindergarten for, for little baby sharks, which <laughs> I don't think is what they are. You're not exactly far off. I mean, really, it's a, it's a safe place. So uh, when that, you know, big female lemon got as close to the mangroves, and if people don't know, realize that mangroves have their roots right down in the ocean, and it has these cool kind of tunnels and places for lots of baby animals to hide out. Um, you see lots of reef fish, turtles, um, conch, lobster, and these, these young sharks, these uh, newborns, and they'll spend their first few years of their life in that nursery area. It's shallow. So there's large predators can't actually physically get in there. There's lots of food. And what you see is it's really, yeah, they're not learning to read and write like kindergarten, but they're learning how to be a shark. Um, you know, they can practice hunting. In the case of lemon sharks, they're social. So they might hunt with one friend or hide out with another. So they have their buddies. Um, yeah, so it's, it's a really a safe place for them to find food learn and grow before they venture out into to deeper water and, and face larger threats and larger predators. So you've got a species there that's very long lived, takes a long time, uh, invests a lot of energy in its offspring. So I'm just interested to know, is, is, is that a successful strategy or, you know, does that make them quite vulnerable? Well, it must be a successful strategy because they've been evolving for 400 million years and they're still here today. So it clearly has some form of success. However, it does indeed make them vulnerable, especially to human effects. So um, whether it's fishing pressures or um, any sort of way that we are killing them directly or indirectly, um, it means that it's really easy for us to get over the point where fishing them is sustainable because sustainability will be, would be if we were fishing them and they were able to reproduce uh, and replenish their populations at the rate or faster than we are fishing them out. At this point, we're fishing them or killing them uh, in such huge numbers that that's not the case. You know, they're slow growing, they mature late. So if you, you know, 25, 30 years for white sharks, they have to survive that long just to then be able to reproduce. Mm -hmm. So it does show us why they are so vulnerable to overfishing and these, these threats that exist um, you know, mm -hmm. simply because of that process. Yeah, mm -hmm. it's a successful strategy if we take humans out of the equation, I guess. <laughs> as is most often the case in nature, yeah. <laughs> I think. So the question that we had to answer today was how do sharks do babies? Uh, and I think we've answered it as, as thoroughly as we possibly can. We've covered all the basics there, you know, right from how sharks meet each other in the first place, how mating actually occurs, right through to the sort of gestation process, how do they grow the little baby sharks and then right to how they give birth. And, you know, I was gonna say how they look after them, but it, it's, it's more of how they look after themselves, I guess, after they've, after they've left the mother. And um, so just to bring it back to, to you guys, uh, so I just wanted to ask, what is next for you? What, what, what are your plans moving forwards? Yeah, so um, I'm always working on new content, new ways to reach students, new interactive engagement. Um, we've got a lot of new video content coming out, so I'm really excited about that. I think 
it's an amazing way for anyone to learn, but I think it's a way for, you know, makes learning fun and interesting and engaging for students. And it's, you know, technology is allowing us to study sharks in different ways, but it's also how we can learn and how students can learn. So um, yeah, we're, we're constantly um, working on new content. I'm really excited to get back to in-person events and classroom visits. Um, I miss that, it's been weird. Um, and so I'm really, really excited specifically, you know, getting back to the schools in Bimini and getting students out on the water. That's, that's so important to me. And, and so, yeah, I'm excited to get, get back to that and continue to do more and provide more of those in-person opportunities for as many students as we can. I um, have a year and a half left of my PhD and I'm currently sort of getting into the, the um, full on fieldwork season of like my main project on blue sharks that I was telling you about. Um, and one of the questions I'm trying to answer is actually uh, relevant to the conversation. I'm trying to figure out what the reproductive status of shark of blue sharks is when they come to island. Um, as I said, we get mostly females. Um, are they pregnant when they arrive? Are they pregnant when they leave? Are they mating before they arrive? Are they mating after they leave? All these questions are questions I'm trying to answer along with what they're feeding on while they're here. So that's really what's coming up for me in the immediate. Um, after that, I really hope that in the, in the next year and a half, I'll have finished my PhD and be a fully fledged doctor. Um, doctor of sharks. I really like the idea of being a doctor of sharks. <laughs> yes, that's a super exciting title to have, definitely. And I have Lynn as well. Um, so remembering back to finishing my PhD, not to ask a PhD student what they're planning to do afterwards, <laughs> because your your yeah. brain's already so full of kind of what you did yeah. at the moment. Um, yeah, who knows what comes afterwards. I hope that I keep uh, I'm able to stay in the shark world and to keep doing something along the lines of what I'm doing here. And I, I also can't wait to see where Sharks for Kids goes uh, and how much we can grow in the next few years, because it's, it's really been such a joy to be a part of. So I can't wait to, to see how many more people, how many more students we can reach with all of our lessons. Yeah, absolutely. And and speaking of, if if people wanted to get involved with sharks, sharks for kids, you know, how might they go about that? Yeah, so we have a website that has all of our resources for free, links to our videos, to our webinars, um, crafts, all of that. You can book a virtual lesson, uh, eventually an in-person lesson if we have somebody in your area. Uh, and that's the, the sharksforkids.com and it's the number four. So uh, really has links to all of our information, our social pages. Um, we're, we're pretty active on social media from sharing uh, what we're up to, but also just general shark facts. And um, we have fun trivia and just kind of just general knowledge and updates about what's happening in the world of shark science as well. So um, we kind of try and offer a little bit of all of that. So um, yeah, and that's kind of where you can check out uh, and learn more about the programs and opportunities uh, available. And it's all right there. And it's, it's very easy to connect with us. And you can just shoot us an email through the website as well um, if you have questions. And finally, we have come to our final question. Uh, if you could be any species of shark or ray, what would you be and why? I would have to say the great hammerhead just because they're my favorite animal and I'm absolutely fascinated by them. And I think I do a, a talk with kids about shark superpowers and their adaptations and 
mm -hmm. the hammerheads are really um i think the top of the superpower list from the, you know having that cephalofoil that large head that's filled with more um ampullae their vision their superpower near 360 vision so i just think seeing the ocean from their perspective um we know they're migratory and um yeah i just they're so beautiful so amazing so i think yeah i would just to experience that they would definitely be the the shark that i would want to be i think i would really love to be a deep sea species um Ooh. possibly maybe like a pocket shark or or something like that because i'd love to see what's down there now i am a little bit scared of the dark but i reckon if i've got glowing pockets down my side uh to scare anything away then i'd be good oh that's so funny because that's also my my species that's the species i would be um <laughs> so i would definitely be a pocket shark but purely for the reason that i would like to know what it's like to have glow in the dark armpits yeah i think that would be really cool exactly. <laughs> Um, and yeah, I'd love to see what's down there. There's so much unexplored areas Absolutely. in the deep that mm -hmm. it would be so ingesting to see. It'd be awesome. Oh, well, maybe we can be little pocket sharks floating Funny. around together and, and Gillian can have fun in her warm tropical waters. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, cool. Thank you so, so much for coming on the podcast. I've really loved chatting to you both um and and yeah uh, excited to see what comes next for you thank you thanks for having us yeah well thanks so much for having us so guys that is a wrap on episode one thank you so much for listening i really hope you enjoyed the episode and a massive thank you to jillian and jenny for coming on the podcast and chatting shark reproduction with me you can find Gillian on at Bimini Sharkgirl and Jenny on at Sharky Jenny on both Instagram and Twitter. If you like this episode, be sure to subscribe so that you don't miss the next one and leave us a nice little review on iTunes. This just helps more people to find us. And if you would like a question answered on the podcast or you just want to say hi, please feel free to get in touch by emailing Isla, that's I-S-L-A at saveourseas.com. A big thank you to the Save Our Seas Foundation for supporting this podcast and to David Knight who provided our wonderful jingle. All right, thanks for listening and I will see you next time.